when your life is full of heartache and sorrow and suffering, say this three times. I will not fear because Jesus is near. I will not fear because Jesus is near. I will not fear because Jesus is near. Say it four times, eight times, 16 times if you have to. Say it until you believe it. I will not fear because Jesus is here. How near is Jesus? Well, I'm going to let Charles Spurgeon explain it to you. He said this, Beloved, and there's a lot of good truth in here, okay, so get ready. Beloved, the fact is that God is everywhere. He is so present in all places that he is specially near to each person. His circumference is nowhere, but his center is everywhere. God is as much with you as if there were no other person in the world. His being near to you does not make him far off from another. This truth is high. And we cannot attain to it, but it is nonetheless sure. God is near each one of us, observing us with exactness, perceiving the secret intents of our hearts. He is near us, feeling for us and thinking of us. He is near us in active energy, ready to interpose and help us. He is near us in all places and at all times. By night and by day, he surrounds us. At this moment, Surely God is in this place. Know it and be filled with awe. God is near you and therefore hope is near you. Isn't that good? I love Spurgeon. I wish I could just read his sermons. It'd probably be better. Jesus is near. He's close. He sat next to your bed last night and watched over you as you slept or didn't sleep because it's been really hot, right? He's close, he cares, he sees, he hears. And isn't that what you want? Isn't that what you need in a savior? He is intimately tied up in our lives. He's, he's all tangled up in our affairs. He's all up in our business. Our problems are his problems. Our troubles are his troubles. Our cares become his cares. Our heartache becomes his heartache. Why? Because we belong to him. Because we are united to Christ, united to him. Because he is our redeemer. And because we're family. And that's what we'll see today in Psalm 34. So turn there in your Bibles. Recall what we saw last week about the background to Psalm 34. David, as he's writing Psalm 34, is looking back over a time in his life when he was on the run from King Saul. He was a wanted man. Saul wanted him dead. You can read about this uh, background in 1 Samuel 21. In that uh, story, David went to the city of Gath, running from King Saul, but he showed up with Goliath's sword, Goliath that he had killed years before. He showed up with Goliath's sword, and Gath was the hometown of Goliath. And so the Gathites locked David up in jail because they had heard rumors about him, how his kill count was at 10,000. And this guy, whose kill count was 10,000, had just walked into Goliath's hometown with Goliath's sword. 
So what do you do with the guy who killed Goliath and is crazy enough to march back into his hometown with his sword? You lock him up. You put handcuffs on him. You put him in jail. And so fearing for his life, David started acting crazy. He started scribbling graffiti all over their walls. He let spit just run down his beard. And that's when the Gathite said, you can go free. Get this crazy guy out of our city. And so all charges against David were dropped. Well, then we fast forward to sometime in the future, and David is writing a song about that moment in his life when he's on the run from King Saul. And that song is Psalm 34. So we're going to pick up where we left off last week, beginning in verse 9. Hear the word of the Lord. O fear Yahweh, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek Yahweh lack no good thing. So we ended uh, last week with verse 8 where David encouraged us to taste and see that the Lord is good. And now he tears, tells us to fear the Lord. But what exactly what does that mean? What does it mean to fear Yahweh? What does it mean to fear the Lord? Understand this. For the Christian, and that's an important qualifier here. For the Christian, for the one trusting in Christ alone, to fear God is not to be afraid of God. To fear God, rather, is to live in awe of his steadfast, unfailing love for us in Jesus. So being afraid of God is not the same thing as fearing the Lord. To fear the Lord for the Christian is the awe, the sense of awe and wonder that overcomes us as we embrace the staggering truth that God loves and forgives sinners like us. We see a classic example of this in Psalm 130. You probably know the verse where forgiveness is connected with fear. Psalm 130 verses 3 and 4. If you, O Yahweh, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The idea of fear here is one of awe and gratitude. Our sheer awe and the gratitude that we have for his forgiveness is actually what drives us to love and serve him. Notice that it does not say with you there is punishment that you may be feared. You you can expect it to be that way, right? With you there is wrath, with you there is white-hot anger, with you there is punishment, and therefore you are to be feared. But no, it's forgiveness that drives our fear, not punishment. It's forgiveness that drives us to be grateful and to want to love and serve Jesus. It's not threats and warnings. But notice also that the psalmist in Psalm 130 isn't afraid of God. He's not scared of God. He's not shaking in his boots. Quite the opposite. Because right after verse 4 in Psalm 130, he goes on to write about how his soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. You don't wait with joy and you don't wait with expectancy for someone that you are afraid of. You don't wait for someone that you're scared of. You get out of dodge. So what Psalm 130 teaches us is that forgiveness is the fertile soil for growing a right and correct fear of God. 
You want to fear God? You want to fear the Lord? Rehearse the gospel. Remember what Christ has done for you. Without God's forgiveness, we could never approach him, and we would never want to. Without the cross, God would only be a dreadful judge of whom we would be afraid. Without the cross, we'd be scared to death of God. And so the gospel turns our natural dread of God as rebellious sinners into the fearful, trembling adoration of beloved children. And so it's our adoption as sons and daughters that sweetens this relationship that we have with this holy, all-powerful, gloriously infinite God. As Paul says in Romans eight fifteen, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into what? To fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. As sons and daughters, we fear the Lord. We are in awe of him. We are grateful for what he has done for us. But get this, Jesus, the son of God, he actually feared the Lord. Did you know that? Jesus feared the Lord. So whatever it means to fear the Lord, Jesus did it. That's why the fear of the Lord cannot be a, be a fear of being punished by him because Jesus had the same fear and he never sinned. The prophet Isaiah, Isaiah tells us in chapter 11, verses 2 and 3, And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Jesus feared the Lord and delighted in this fear. The fear of the Lord was his delight. It's what got him up in the morning, if you will. That means that the fear of the Lord for Christians is not being afraid of God, hiding from him. The fear of the Lord is the fear of a child not wanting to displease his father, his parents. That's the fear of the Lord. Jesus did not want to displease his father. His desire, his delight, what got him up in the morning was to please his father in heaven. Martin Luther, the great reformer, is very helpful when talking about the fear of the Lord. He made an important distinction between what he called filial fear and servile fear. Servile fear is the fear of a criminal when he sees the executioner coming because he's about to get his head chopped off. So there's nothing sweet about that relationship at all, is there? But filial fear is the fear of a child when they see their mom or dad. It's a sweet relationship. Servile fear is the kind of fear that a prisoner has for his torturer. Servile fear is the fear that a criminal has when he sees the executioner coming. But filial fear is a family fear. It's the respect a child has for their parents. It's the fear that a child has. They don't want to offend. They don't want to disappoint their parents. And so filial fear means that we hold God in this holy and childlike awe. We're just in awe of him, and we don't want to offend him. Chapter 20 of the Westminster Confession of Faith speaks about this. It says this, The liberty which Christ hath purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin, 
the condemning wrath of God and the curse of the moral law. And in their being delivered from this present evil world, bondage to Satan and dominion of sin, and from the evil of afflictions, the sting of death and the victory of the grave and everlasting damnation. We're freed from all that. As also in their free access to God and their yielding obedience unto him, not out of slavish fear, but a childlike love and a willing mind. And that's the fear of the Lord. It's it's not a slavish fear. It's childlike love. It's the child in their best moments, right, saying, I just want to please mom and dad. It's childlike wonder. Slavish fear will make you miserable. Childlike awe and wonder will actually free you to enjoy God and to, re- to relax and to rest, to know that you're accepted, know that you're loved. You don't have to be tense all the time in your relationship with God. You just kind of, ah, you know what, I'm forgiven, I'm free. It'll free you up to laugh more and to dance. Let me recommend childlike awe and wonder over slavish fear. Now, let me say something else about the fear of God because somebody out there is thinking about why are we, what about, okay. Of course we don't come flippantly into God's presence, right? How are we given access, this free access to God that the Westminster Confession speaks of? How do we get this free access to God? The bloody, brutal death of Jesus on the cross for us. That is our ticket into God's presence. So, of course, we don't come flippantly because it was the life of death, the life and death of Jesus on the cross for us. So, of course, when we say that to fear God isn't to be afraid of him, doesn't mean that we just march into his presence and don't give a rip about anything. Our ticket into his presence is Jesus spilling his blood for all the things that we've done wrong, all of our sin. We don't treat his holiness lightly. So I am not saying that you can live in total disregard of God just because you're forgiven. I am not saying grace abounds so now we can live any way we want to. So please do not think that I'm saying that because I'm not. If you think for a moment that you can approach God flippantly, just live any way that you want to, totally disregarding his word, totally disregarding his holiness, then you know what? You haven't read your Bible enough. Because there are plenty of stories where God disciplines his people when they live with this flippant attitude. of just like, hey, we can do anything we want. But if we're in Christ, we do not have to be afraid of God. The fear of God for a Christian is not played in a minor key. It's not dour. Michael Reeves says, It is the devil's work to promote a fear of God that makes people afraid of God such that they want to flee from God. The Spirit's work is the exact opposite, to produce in us a wonderful fear that wins and draws us to God. There's a lot of preaching in the world today that makes people afraid of God and they want to flee from him. And they're just obeying out of obligation and duty. There's no joy. There's no gratitude. It's just like, I better do this because that famous preacher says, if I don't stay in line, then Jesus is going to get me. And there's no desire in their heart to want to. The Spirit's work is the exact opposite of all that. It's to produce in us this wonderful will, fear that wins and draws us to God, that we want to be with him, we want to honor him, we want to be with his people. 
The devil wants you to think that you need to be afraid of God and fear his punishment if you are a Christian. But the Holy Spirit wants to produce a fear in you that actually draws you to God, not away from him. So ungodly fear pushes you away from God. And if you're being pushed away from God, that is not the Holy Spirit. That is the devil pushing you on the shoulder. The Spirit wants to draw you more and more into the love and mercy of Christ. There are deeper waters of mercy and grace to explore. I don't care how long you've been a Christian. And the devil wants to push you away from that, draw you away from that. Ungodly fear is the fear of a rebel, the fear that Adam had after sinning in the garden. But godly fear is the work of the Spirit in the heart that draws the redeemed in wonder and awe of God. And so godly fear is actually the opposite of being afraid of God, as if God were a tyrant. Instead, godly fear is our love for and our delight in and our enjoyment of all that God is for us in his Son. To fear God is not to run from him, it's to run to him. So if we're in Christ, we do not have to be afraid of God. But for the unbeliever, however, the unbeliever should fear God, absolutely, because the unbeliever is under God's wrath. They are in Adam. They are outside of Christ. They should fear God. They should repent and turn and flee to Jesus and trust in him. But for the Christian... The fear of the Lord is not some gloomy doctrine. I mean, it's how we typically think of it, right? The pastor's going to preach on the fear of the Lord. Who wants to show up for that? The fear of the Lord is not the equivalent of Darth Vader walking into the room and everyone's on edge, right? That's how we typically think of it. Like, you better be on your best behavior. Lord Vader is here. Some Christians think and act like that, but that's not the fear of the Lord. Look busy. Jesus is coming. That's not the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is actually a beautiful doctrine. It's life-giving. It's good news. I mean, imagine that. The fear of the Lord is good news. In fact, it's something you need every day because it's this awe and wonder that an infinitely holy God sent his one and only son to save you. It's joyful trembling. There's tears of joy and wonder and awe. And it sparks and it stirs up obedience and a desire to glorify Jesus and to live for his kingdom. So how do we do what David says here in Psalm 34? How do we as saints fear the Lord? Where does the fear of the Lord come from? Well, John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress, said that it comes from sensing the love and kindness of Jesus. Isn't that interesting? How do you get the fear of the Lord? It's from sensing and knowing the love and kindness of Jesus. Not Lord Vader's walking into the room, but sensing Jesus' love. Here's what Bunyan said. This godly fear also flows from a sense of the love and kindness of God to the soul. Where there is no sense of hope of the kindness and mercy of God by Jesus Christ, there can be none of this fear, but rather wrath and despair, which produceth that fear that is devilish. But godly fear floweth from some sense or hope of mercy from God by Jesus Christ. Indeed, nothing can lay a stronger obligation upon the heart to fear God than sense of or hope in mercy. This begetteth true tenderness of heart, 
true godly softness of spirit, this truly endeareth the affections to God. And in this true tenderness, softness, and endearedness of affection to God lieth the very essence of this fear of the Lord. Bunyan is telling us that the fear of the Lord comes from sensing and knowing the kindness of Jesus towards sinners. It's the hope that we have that his mercies are new every morning. I mean, who knew? The fear of the Lord could be the thing that causes you to joyfully love and serve and follow Jesus. David then goes on to show us how to have this kind of joy. Look at verse 9. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of Yahweh. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. David reminds us that one way to keep this joyful awe and adoration of Jesus is simply to keep our mouths shut. Easier said than done, David. If we want to live peaceful lives, we need to learn to shut up. We need to learn to control our tongues. Psalm 34 is telling you, shut up. And you know this from experience, right? Do you have a peace when you rant and rave and go off on some tirade? When you gossip, when you slander, when you complain, when you mumble and when you grumble? Do you have peace? No. You lose that sense of awe and wonder of Jesus when you run your mouth. You lose peace. You lose out on goodness and everything just feels yucky. There's misery and guilt and shame. Tell me. Have you ever experienced real, lasting peace when you ran your mouth excessively in an ungodly way? No, you haven't. Now, if we do what we saw last week and we bless the Lord at all times and his praise is continuing on our mouths, then we will have the fear of the Lord. We'll be full of awe and wonder of Jesus and we'll have peace. But if we run our mouths in an ungodly way, we lose out on blessing. And who wants that? Not me. Lord Jesus, help me and my mouth. That's a prayer we probably all need to pray, right? Lord Jesus, help me and my mouth. When you have the fear of the Lord and you are in awe of him, you start looking for ways to bless others. You do what David says in verse 14. You do good to others. Instead of speaking evil of of others, you do good to them. And you seek out peace. You're a blessing to others. But then in verse 15, David lays out the incentive to live the kind of life that he describes in verses 12 through 14. Why keep your tongue from evil evil, and why do good to others? Why seek peace? Answer is because Jesus is near. Answer because all your problems are God's problems. Answer because you're family, because you belong to Jesus. Look at verse 15. The eyes of Yahweh are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of Yahweh is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, Yahweh hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Yahweh is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but Yahweh delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. 
Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. Yahweh redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. And so all that David says here that Yahweh does for us is proof that our problems are his problems. He intervenes because what we are dealing with matters to him. What is heavy on your heart this morning matters to Jesus. His eyes are upon us. In fact, his eyes are on all mankind, David says. And his face is against those who do evil. But for his children, God sees and hears our every cry. And even though he is near and his eyes are upon his children, that doesn't mean, please don't get the impression that God just lets pagans run around doing whatever they want, okay? He sees them too. He deals with them because ain't nobody getting away with nothing. But let this phrase from verse 15 stagger you. His ears are toward our cries, which means that he is within earshot, which means that he bends down toward us. He desires to hear our prayers. Imagine that. Jesus desires to hear you cry out to him. We matter to him. If Jesus had a Psalm 34-inspired business card, it would read, sees, hears, delivers, near, saves, redeems. This is what Jesus does for you every day. This is on Jesus' to-do list for you today. Whatever it is that's weighing heavy on your heart right now, that maybe you couldn't focus during worship, you're thinking about it right now, Jesus is going to do all of that for you, for that situation that's weighing heavy on your heart right now, in his wisdom and in his time, but you can trust him. Lord, what are you going to do? Well, I see what you're going through. I hear what you're saying. I'm going to deliver you. I'm near. I'm going to save you. I'm going to redeem this situation that you're in. Look, Christian, everything that has ever stressed you out and weighed down your heart up to this moment in your life, you can look back and say, Jesus did all of those things for me. Two years ago, you were stressed out and freaking... Well, let's not do two years ago, okay? I don't want to go back two years. Let's go further back, okay? Five years ago, you were stressed out and freaking out about something, about to lose your mind. You couldn't sleep at night. You couldn't eat. You were losing weight, chewing your fingernails down to your elbow. You were so stressed out, pulling out your hair, and Jesus did all of that for you, and you haven't thought about that in a long time. Because you moved on because he did all of that for you. And he answered and all that stuff got worked out. And you're like, oh yeah, I forgot about that. Man, I was losing my marbles. And Jesus did all of that for you in that situation. And he does that with everything you go through. And he's doing that right now behind the scenes in ways you cannot see for whatever is weighing on your heart right now. In other words, Jesus is near you. And therefore, hope is near you. He sees all that you're going through. He hears all your cries, all your prayers. He delivers you in his time, in his way, according to his wisdom, from all afflictions. Now, of course, Psalm 34 is not promising an easy life, nor is it promising to make all the hard things and all the afflictions just go away. But Psalm 34 is promising you that Jesus will be with you as you go through hard times and afflictions. It is promising you that he is near. As David says in verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. And so when your heart is breaking 
and your spirit is crushed, say this three times. I will not fear because Jesus is near. I will not fear because Jesus is near. I will not fear because Jesus is near. Say it until your heart believes it. Psalm 34 is like the Old Testament cousin to Philippians 4, where Paul says, the Lord is near, Philippians 4, 5. The Lord is listening to your prayers, Philippians 4, 6. And the Lord is guarding you with his peace, Philippians 4, 7. That's just Philippians 4 dressed up as Psalm 34 is all that it is. In fact, before Paul says, be anxious for nothing in Philippians 4, what does he say? He says, the Lord is near. The Lord is near, be anxious for nothing. The Lord is near, be anxious for nothing. As if to say that the fundamental way that we deal with our fears, and that we deal with our anxieties, that we deal with our heartaches is to recall and to remind ourselves that Jesus is near. Let me say it again. The fundamental way that we deal with our fears and our anxieties and our heartache is to remind ourselves that Jesus is near. Ed Welch says, fear and anxiety are like a string tied around your finger. They should remind you to do something. What? They remind you to turn immediately to our God who is near and is for us. Let me read that again, okay? That's a good quote. Fear and anxiety are like a string tied around your finger. They should remind you to do something. What should they remind you to do? They remind you to turn immediately to our God who is near and is for us. I mean, isn't that good? It's simple. Fear and anxiety are like a string that we tie around our fingers to remind us to do something. Fear and anxiety, when they come into our life, should remind us, oh yeah, oh yeah, this thing happening, this is just a reminder for me to turn to Jesus because I'm a knucklehead and I forgot. So everything's happening in your life right now that's stretching you out. It's there to remind you, oh yeah, I need to go to Jesus. Because you know what? You forgot, didn't you? To turn to Jesus who is near us and is for us. You might even need to do that sometimes. You might need to literally tie a string around your finger, not to remind you to buy milk at the grocery store, not to remind you to mail off that bill, but to help you to remember that Jesus is near. So you look down at that string on your finger like, oh yeah, Jesus is near. That'll open up a door of witnessing at your workplace. Tie a string around your finger and go to work tomorrow. Someone is going to ask you, what's that string for? You know what? You, you probably don't know this about me, but I'm a knucklehead. And I forget that Jesus is near, so I just need this reminder, that's all. You want to share your faith? Tie a string around your finger and go to work tomorrow. Someone is going to ask you about it. You can go through a lot when you remember that Jesus is near you and for you. And why wouldn't Jesus be near? I mean, we're family, right? He's our older brother. We belong to him now. Why would he ignore us? He wouldn't because he's near. In fact, the Hebrew word near that is used in verse 19 is also used of the nearest relative in the book of Ruth. The next of kin, which was Boaz, the nearest relative who had the privilege of stepping in and helping out a family member. This person had the right to take on himself all the needs of his relative. The near redeemer would help out a mistreated or helpless relative. He would take upon himself the relative's need, burden, and debt as if it were his own. That's what Boaz did. 
for Ruth. And that's how Jesus comes to us. He comes to carry our burdens to make our problems his problems. I mean, isn't that wonderful? Jesus comes to make whatever it is is weighing on your heart this morning. He comes to you and says, you know what? That belongs to me now. Hand it over. Come on. Nope. Nope. Can't carry it anymore. Let me have it. Just, just let, let go of it. Jesus comes and he says to us, your problems are my problems now. Hand them over. They don't belong to you anymore. I'll take care of this for you. Your burdens and your needs are on me. It's my responsibility. Alec Motier said, the Lord automatically identifies with those overwhelmed by life's sorrows. He's close, a next of kin relationship, not just being near at hand, but actively making our woes his own. A redeemer says, you've got a problem? Give it to me. You've got a burden? Let me bear it. You've got a debt? Let me pay it. So Jesus says something like that to you today. What is your problem? Give it to me. What is your need? I will meet it. What is your burden? Lay it on my shoulders. I am determined to be your next of kin. Your troubles are mine. I love that. In Psalm 34, David is reminding us that all our problems are God's problems. Our cares become his cares. Our heartache becomes his heartache. Why? Because we belong to him, because we are united to him, because he is our redeemer, and because we are family. Understand this. Jesus, the impression you get from Psalm 34 is that Jesus just can't get close enough to the heartbroken. The crushed in spirit are those he hugs tightest. This means that Jesus is not just putting up with us. This is not his job. It's like, I got to do my job. I'm the redeemer, so I'm supposed to do. He actually enjoys coming alongside the brokenhearted. So if your heart is breaking this morning, know that Jesus will not refuse you. He is near you as you experience many afflictions. So yes, the pain may remain. As verse 19 says, many are the afflictions of the righteous. I don't like that word many. I wish I could rewrite the Bible and that just said, sometimes the righteous are afflicted. Few are the afflictions of the righteous. You guys like my translation, don't you? The BMV. Few are the afflictions of the righteous. But this is what God's word says. But underneath all the pain and the suffering and the affliction, you know what? There is a friend. We find a friend there. There's intimacy. The closeness of Jesus goes deeper than the pain and the suffering. In fact, suffering brings God's presence near in a way that nothing else can because it is often in the darkest, most painful experiences of our lives that the sweetness and closeness of, and intimacy of Jesus takes on a whole new level. We go deeper in our intimacy with him. I'm going to assume that you have experienced this paradox of discipleship before. That in the darkest, most painful experiences of our lives, the sweetness and the closest and the intimacy of Jesus takes on a whole new level, doesn't it? In those places of pain and suffering, we come to know the depth of his affection and the intensity of his engagement in our lives. We learn that we really are Fragile, vulnerable, foolish. And his intent 
is to place us under his wings next to his heart. Why? Because he really is a compassionate, tender, kind savior. How foolish we are when we begin to think otherwise. How foolish we are when we begin to think there's any greater sanctuary, any more settling and centering place, any more peaceful and nourishing abode than to be close to Jesus. So here's what David is telling you today. Bring your weariness Bring your foolishness to Jesus today. Bring your brokenness, your weariness, your deep longings, your perpetual restlessness, your unnamed wounds, your yet-to-be-wiped tears. Bring them to Jesus because he is near. You may know that Psalm 34 gets quoted by John in John 19.36 as being fulfilled while Jesus was on the cross. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. None of Jesus' bones were broken on the cross, fulfilling this passage. But why does John, in his gospel, see the connection with the cross in Psalm 34, with what David went through? Certainly it's because he knew that on the cross, our troubles became Jesus' troubles. Our sins became his sins. As the next of kin relative, our Redeemer... Jesus took our problem, he took our need, he took our burden and made it his own and he gave us his righteousness. This is why David says in verse 21 that we will never be condemned because Jesus was condemned in our place on the cross and that should make us awestruck and that should give us the fear of the Lord that he died in our place for our sins. Because of the cross, now God sees Jesus when he sees us. Isn't that amazing? You woke up kind of feeling dirty, kind of this low hum of guilt and shame, that sense of dirty that no matter how many times you say, God, forgive me, I'm sorry, God, forgive me, and you pray, you just don't feel clean. Anybody relate with that? I was doing it before the sermon. God, just forgive me, cleanse me. I just feel like I can't get clean, but I am clean. And so are you. And when God looks at you, he sees his own son, Jesus. That's amazing. Let's close with this staggering quote that highlights that truth right there. Sinclair Ferguson said this. Man, this is good. As I stand in God's presence and he looks at me, I hear him say, where have I seen that righteousness before? Come near. I recognize it now. That is my son's righteousness you are wearing. Enter. You are welcome and safe here. Isn't that good? When God sees you, he sees the righteousness of Jesus and he says, welcome, enter. You're safe. Come on in. Let's talk. Christian, you can stand near God in all his white, hot, blazing holiness because you wear Christ's righteousness. If you don't know Jesus, you should fear him. And you should turn to him now. You can stand in God's presence if you turn from your sins and you turn to Jesus and say, have mercy, forgive me, help me, I need you. Then you too can stand in God's white, hot holiness. But Christian, that's the good news of the gospel, is that you can stand in his white, hot blazing holiness because you wear Christ's righteousness. And when you stand before God one day, say this three times, I will fear, I will be in awe because Jesus is near. 
I will fear. I will be in awe. Because Jesus is near right now. I will fear. I will be in awe. Because Jesus is near. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for being our next of kin redeemer. We've got problems. So we give them to you now. We've got burdens, but we'll let you bear them. We've got debts, we'll let you pay them. We've got needs, and we trust that you will meet them. Thank you that you are near. Thank you for your kind, compassionate, and tender heart. In your name we pray, amen.